So we've been using this painting in this series called Curator, and we've used it as kind of a prop to let us think about the major events in the life of Christ. And I like to review these real quickly because it kind of refreshes our memory. So over the last several weeks, we talked first about the temptation of Jesus. Then we talked a little bit about the transfiguration of Jesus. Then we talked about how he warned Jerusalem about its coming destruction. Then we talked about the parables of Jesus. And then last week, we talked about the meaning of the death of Jesus upon the cross. Today, what I want to talk about is I want to talk about the triumphal entry of Jesus. Now, this Sunday goes by a couple of different names. It's usually called Palm Sunday because of what the crowd did by the waving of the palm branches. But in terms of the events of the life of Christ, a better uh, title for it is the triumphal entry of Jesus, or I would even rephrase it, a triumphal entry. Because as was mentioned in the video you just watched, there were many dignitaries and rulers that also kind of descended upon Jerusalem during the time of Passover because of their own fears, and they made their entry on horseback and with pomp and circumstance and all that type of thing too. So while we as Christians say this is the triumphal entry, in general it is a triumphal entry that is then paralleled in some respects to the other people that are coming into town on that day. So let's think about this a little bit and I want us to expand our thinking a little bit by talking to some other reference points that obviously Jesus is using symbolically in this day of entry into Jerusalem. So Tomorrow, on Monday, if you were to follow the chronology of the life of Christ, he will go into the temple area and he will do what is called cleanse the temple. He will drive out those who are using the temple as a commercial enterprise to get rich. So if you watch tomorrow morning's Unvarnished Jesus on Facebook, I talk about that a little bit. But when Jesus is entering the city of Jerusalem, there is going to be this tension because he has been proclaiming that he is on a journey to Jerusalem and he's already told his disciples that in Jerusalem he's going to die. Now, the people that are gathered there for the Passover feast will see the entry of Jesus into the city and they will be filled with all kinds of expectation. Now, those that are the religious leaders have already questioned the authority of Jesus several times over, and after he drives the money changers out of the temple area on Monday, they will question his authority to do such a thing. Now, this is building then toward Friday when he will be put on trial and condemned to death. But on this Sunday, there is a crowd of people in Jerusalem that are there. And there are many people in Jerusalem at this time because there would be pilgrims that would come from all over to celebrate the Passover feast. Now, as he comes into the city of Jerusalem, I was trying to think of a parallel of the expectation, the partying, and the joy that people would have at this yearly feast. And so uh, what I came up with is the Muni lot. 
Okay, so the Muni lot on opening day of the brown season shows the participation of all kinds of people from all over different areas. Some people come in from out of state. There's other people that live in Cuyahoga County, other people that live in Summit and Lake and Ashtabula and uh, so forth. And they all kind of descend into this area and there they party. And then they have all kinds of expectations of what's going to happen once kickoff occurs. But there's also this excitement who you will see there. And so if you ever went to the Muni lot before a Browns game, you might run into the Bone Lady. So the Bone Lady is this iconic figure that has uh, been in appearance uh, before Browns games and on TV and so on and so forth. You might see other people. Um, maybe you see some ex-ball players as they go into the stadium. Hey, 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 there's Bernie Kosar. Hey, there's Eric Medcalf. Ah, there's Doug Deacon. Um, and what people might do is, out of their excitement for seeing some of these celebrities, is they might hold up a beer and say, go Browns. They might ask for an art autograph. They might take a picture. Um, they could do just about anything because of their excitement. So you have to understand that there is a massive crowd that is in Jerusalem. And when they see Jesus and some of his disciples coming, there's this admiration. Jesus has been performing miracles. He's been healing the blind and the lame and the deaf, and he's even raised some people from the dead. And there is a group of people there in Jerusalem that would have heard about that. They would have been excited about that. And then there's these people that are close to him, obviously his disciples, but there are people that have already become his followers. We're not really sure how many at this point. What we do know is after Jesus dies and he is raised again, Jesus will tell a group of 120 people to wait in Jerusalem for the coming of the Holy Spirit. So possibly he has a dedicated following of about 120 people, and uh, they are in great anticipation, especially on this occasion, of what he might do when he reaches the city. And so as he descends into the city, there is a sense of excitement. And the way it comes out is in their public praise as they begin crying out, Hosanna, which is a word that means save us. Now, this expectation that someday there was going to come a Messiah that would actually lead a revolt that would get the Romans off of the Jewish people's back. And what we find is that there is a mode of transportation that is happening as Jesus moves into Jerusalem. So the people are coming to celebrate the feast. They're coming from all over. They are celebrating some of the dignitaries or important people, the uh, religious leaders, some political figures, that type of thing. And how is it that they would welcome these individuals? Well, in the first century there would be a group of them that would go out and meet them before they actually enter the city. 
And the way that they would say, you're welcome to come into the city, is they would do different things like wave palm branches, put their cloaks down, kind of the red carpet treatment, if you will, and then sing out praise or hosanna or some type of excitement and joy. And that's what we find taking place. So Jesus is coming into Jerusalem. He's not riding a horse, though. He's riding a donkey. And as he sees the crowd, he knows their expectation. And they are quite excited. But he also knows that those that are dedicated to their Jewish faith are making a connection in their mind to a prophecy that goes all the way back into the Old Testament. One of the prophets' name is Zechariah. And we already heard it a couple of times already in the service today, but I'll remind you of what it says. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Lo, your king comes to you triumphant and victorious as he, humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey, and he will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall command peace to the nations, and his dominion shall be from sea to sea, from river to the ends of the earth. That would get you quite excited because he is this messianic figure that is actually going to lead to deliverance and freedom, and there would be uh, this unshackling from oppression and overtaxation and all the other things. But what's important about this provocative symbol is this. It becomes a threat to the religious elite and even the political elite as well. Passover was always a tense time. Now think about Passover for a moment. Passover in the Old Testament was a time when God delivered through the last plague. There was 10 plagues in the book of Exodus. The last plague freed them from the chains of Egypt. And they would celebrate each year this freedom. So already packed into the celebration of this feast is this freedom from oppression and slavery and all that type of thing. And so what we find is that built or baked into the event is a little bit of worry by the Romans. Will somebody be crazy enough to try to lead a revolt, take up arms and stab some of the soldiers in the back and all that type of thing, right? So it's already tense. Now, Jesus knows that if he rides in on a donkey, the people who are Jewish know the Old Testament scripture, but there's some other things that he does here. So let's play this out a little bit more. So as he comes into the city, he comes into this place where there is this tension. And for many years, Pilate, and people like Brian McLaren said in the video, Herod would come into Jerusalem, even though they didn't necessarily rule there, they would come in and they would set up shop at this place called the Antonia Fortress. Do you see up there in the corner, there's kind of like a tower that's built at the end of the court of the temple precinct. 
So in the center there is the temple proper. That's where sacrifice would take place. It's where people like the priests would go in and offer prayers and light incense and all that type of stuff. The outer part is called the court of the Gentiles. Those that were not Jewish were not allowed to go closer. They had to stay in the outer court. But you'll see right on the one corner of it is this fortress where the governor, Pilate, would stay. He would have a garrison of soldiers up with him in that apartment-like complex, and he would be constantly looking out the window and making sure that there was nothing that was going on that was going to lead to some type of political revolution. Does that make sense to everybody? Okay. So it would be sort of like at church, if the governing authorities in Willoughby were concerned about what we're doing inside the church, that they decide that they're, gonna, uh, they're going to put out in the parking lot here a security guard station, and they're going to have somebody out there that's going to watch who's coming in, who's coming out. They're going to make sure that nothing fishy is going on inside here, that type of thing. So that's the picture here. There's a lot of tension. The Romans are going to make sure that nothing gets out of control. But let's go back for a second. Jesus then chooses something that is very intentional. What's interesting is the direction that he comes into the city. So there is a place outside the city of Jerusalem to the east called the Mount of Olives, okay? Olive trees grew there and and that type of thing. And Jesus intentionally enters into the city from the east, not from the south or the north, and certainly not from the west. That's the way the Romans would come into the city, from the west, because usually their, uh, their palaces were built along the coast of the Mediterranean Sea and cities like Caesarea and that type of thing, so they would travel and come in from the west. And so Pilate and Herod and other dignitaries would travel in, and they would have their garrison of soldiers. They would be on stallions. They would make sure everybody's intimidated, right? Jesus is going to come in from the east. Now, the individuals that are seeing this are are putting all of the pieces together. Jesus is not walking into the city. Now, think about this for a moment. In the Gospels, the only other mode of transportation that Jesus used was a boat. You never see him on an animal. He was always walking from one place to another. But here he is on a donkey. Fascinating. And as he's coming in, he's riding this donkey. And as he does so, he's coming from the east. Now, why would that be meaningful? Well, What we find from the Old Testament, I'll just go ahead here, this provocative image here is found several times in the Old Testament. I'm not going to read this, it's in your liturgy if you ever want to take a look at that in the Bible. Two times in the book of Judges, when the king was ready to be coronated, he would ride a donkey, okay? The most important one, though, is in 1 Kings chapter 1, verses 28 through 35. Now, just a little bit of context here. 
David had several sons. King David of the Old Testament had several sons. The rightful heir to the throne was a son by the name of Adonijah. That'd be a good name, you know, those of you who are going to have kids sometime. Adonijah, right? But his favored son was through Bathsheba. And his favored son's name was Solomon. Solomon wasn't the rightful heir to the throne. Adonijah was. But here's what it says in 1 Kings chapter 1. Basically, David says, we're not going to go tradition. Adonijah is not going to become the next king. Solomon's going to become the next king. And here's what it says in 1 Kings chapter 1. David says, take with you the servants of your Lord and have Solomon, my son, ride on my mule and bring him down to Gion and let Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet anoint him king over Israel. Take the mule of David, mount Solomon on top of it, go to this city and you have the priest and the prophets going to anoint Solomon king, all right? Ding, 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 all these bells are going off. You know what Jesus is claiming by traveling into the city on a donkey? He's the son of David. He's the son of David. He's the next ruler. Do you see what I'm saying? Because in the promise given to David, in the Davidic covenant in the Old Testament is you will always have a descendant of yours on the throne. And that's why you have two genealogies in Matthew and in Luke linking the genealogy of Jesus back to David. Have you ever wondered why all those names are there? That's why. It's to link him back to David. He is the rightful heir of the Davidic dynasty. So they pick up palm branches. They begin to wave these palm branches because they're recognizing, here he comes. He's coming in from the east. He's coming in from the east. He's riding this donkey just like Solomon did. But then they think of Ezekiel. And in Ezekiel chapter 43, verses 1 through 5, there's this promise. Ezekiel says, as the glory of the Lord entered the temple by the gate facing where? The east. The Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court, and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. Do you see why this is so full of expectation? Ezekiel the prophet is talking about how the glory of God will come back to the temple after the glory had departed. That's a whole different story that we're not going to get into. But what we find is he's traveling in from the east. He's and they're waving palm branches, and they're laying down the red carpet for him. So you have symbolic geography there. But probably the one that really hits them is this one out of Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9 and 10. And he reminds them of this promise where God is going to come and deliver his people, and when he comes and delivers his people, he's going to go Will Smith on the city. And when he gets there, he's more like Chris Rock. He's willing to take the blows rather than give them. Are you following what I'm saying? So their expectation is shattered. 
All of these things are symbolic, and the reminder is that the glory of the Lord is going to come back to the people of Israel. Ezekiel tells us that. Zechariah tells us that. Even Zechariah says he's going to cut off the battle bow, and he shall speak peace to the nations, and he's going to rule from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. And then all of a sudden on Monday, he goes into the temple and he drives out all the commercialization that's going on there and all the oppression upon poor people who all they're trying to do is offer a sacrifice and worship to the God of Israel. And he says, you will not make my father's house a den of thieves. It is meant to be a house of prayer for all people, all nations. And he seals his fate on Monday. Tomorrow he seals his fate because it is there. People will turn on him that had this expectation. But more importantly, because he basically claims sacred space, he's going to take the temple back to himself. The religious leaders say, we got to get rid of him. we got to get rid of him. He's too much of a threat. And so the rest of the week will unfold like that. So Palm Sunday is the day that Jesus, though, as he comes in, is kind of leading a peace march. None of these people coming in are armed with swords. He's already told Peter back in the Garden of Gethsemane, put down your sword. But he's coming in, but just the sight alone of all these people that are interested in him is enough of a threat that it'll turn south. So I was trying to think about, if we can think about this as kind of like the muni lot at the beginning, the excitement that's going on, what's a good image to think about what Jesus is actually doing as he comes into the city? 57 years ago, in the, in the march over the bridge in Selma, Alabama, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., led thousands of people, listen, over 50 miles on a journey of three days from Selma to Montgomery. That was a three-day march around the clock, and they kept marching. John Lewis was one of those. He recently passed away. John Lewis, who was part of uh, the, 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 uh, you know, he was an intercessor for the civil rights movement. Do you know what prompted this? Same problem we have today, voter suppression. Voter suppression. Blacks that weren't allowed to vote simply because of the color of their skin. Now remember during the time, you're not old enough, I am. During the late 60s, there were other black groups, Black Panthers and others that still believed in violence as the way forward, right? but not Dr. Martin Luther King. He and John Lewis crossed this bridge, thousands of people, and it was a peace march. And did it take time? Yeah, it's still taking time because there's still this effort to suppress voters, even to this day. But, but, this peace march was the beginning of the civil rights movement that allowed people to slowly gain freedom to be able to cast their vote for who they wanted to vote for. 
It turned out tragic. There were authorities on the other side of this bridge that beat them with whips. Lives were lost in the process. But Martin Luther King was insistent in nonviolence. And that's a good image for you to think about as Jesus enters into Jerusalem. By the end of the week, Pilate says, Is this the king of the Jews? Jesus remains silent. And the crowd goes, Well, the only way anyone's going to deliver us now is if we turn to someone like Barabbas, not this guy. And it will lead to his death. Palm Sunday is the day Jesus led a peace march with all kinds of provocative imagery that becomes a peaceful public demonstration of what God is intending to do through his kingdom. That's why Jesus cried. Brian McLaren talked about how Jesus wept in his reading. Here's maybe a more contemporary way of putting it. As Jesus entered Jerusalem, he wept and he said, Oh, human civilization, civilization, massive organization that stones the prophets and silence those sent to you with God's wisdom. How often I wanted to gather you together as a hen gathers her chicks. But you would not come if you knew the things that make for peace. Oh, Christendom, oh, Christendom, if you only knew what makes for peace in our world of drones and secret prisons and terrorism and counterterrorism and occupations and nuclear threats and more, oh, I would have loved to gather you as a hen does her chicks. See how contemporary this is? It really is contemporary to our own day. So maybe the only way we can finish this is take your liturgy And there's a closing prayer in there that I'd like to use as a way of closing our service. Would you join me as we stand together in closing, please? I'll pray it, but you pray it in spirit, okay? Lord Jesus, we are a fickle people, quick to turn away. We are quick to flock to you when all is well but we are prone to scatter when there is opposition or criticism. Too often we have kept silent before you, afraid to proclaim your praise. It's easy to join the crowd as you ride triumphantly into Jerusalem, singing our joys and expectations, dancing our hopes and our dreams. It's far more difficult to stand by you as the crowd cries for your crucifixion. Forgive our weakness when we turn away. Strengthen us for the journey ahead as we relive your suffering and death, that we might stay beside you to the end. Give us the courage to shout our hosannas, not only today, but each and every day. And everybody said, amen. Thank you for coming today. We look forward to this week ahead. We'll see you next week. God bless you.